Well, greetings, everyone. I send greetings from Reformed Baptist Church of Riverside. We, we love your church. This is only my second time up here, but I recognize a lot of you when I came and talked to some of you during the youth conference and uh, Pastor Kevin uh, up at the Reformed Baptist Network last year. And of course, we're praying for your dear pastor, Lynn. We love him so much and uh, just thankful for you guys being up here as a witness to Christ and all that God's done in your, in your congregation. We thank God for it. Um, if you'd open with me to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, book of Daniel, chapter 3. Daniel, chapter 3. And we're going to be reading from the, the first verse through a good portion of the chapter. Let me put this down here. Daniel chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps and the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the de dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. So at that time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre in symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now, if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, 
lyre and psaltery and symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made, good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. We'll end the reading there. In today's world, Increasingly, we are experiencing the culture of a connected city. Not only have many moved into the more urban areas from the rural areas, although this might be reversing to some degree now due to so many people starting to work from home in recent years, and thus the office building skyscrapers in the, in the big cities are more and more becoming vacant, but there has nevertheless been a, a great growth in the concentration of urban areas in at least the last hundred years. It's been growing for hundreds of years. And yet even if some are moving back out of the cities due to the abilities through technology to work from home, still the suburbs themselves are one big town of sprawling strip malls and amenities and warehouses and tract homes. Yet more than that, the, the technology of the internet and the communication systems have brought those on the outskirts of the city into the very center of what is happening in the culture of this world city. And so there is a, a very real sense where in today's world, it is very hard to find isolated rural cultures or people groups who have not been the global marketplace and who are not aware of what is going on in far-off places. With this increasing sense of the global city, we find that the principles of worldliness and the sentiments of ungodliness and rebellion against God are becoming more and more 
united in their specific mindsets and opinions. There is a growing unity of consensus on issues of morality and government and society. In our own country, we see such a polarization of political opinions to where you are, you're either in one camp or the other. The mindset of either side of the political spectrum has really melted into a consensus of the same opinions on either side on every topic. It's like there are only two opinions on any given issue nowadays. Individual thought is being conglomerated into the singular, singular thought of the city. We live in the global city and the constant crisscrossing of communication and the, the marriages between different cultures and ethnicities and the ability to acquire goods from anywhere in the world in a matter of days and to sell anywhere in the world with the same lightning speed has also resulted in a growing consensus by the world of not only its opinion on issues of morality and government and society, but of its opinion of and stance towards Christianity and Christians. Increasingly so across the world, in every country, we are seeing a growing threat. And in many ways, places violent manifestations of animosity and persecution against the church of Jesus Christ. Our text in Daniel takes place in what was at the time the capital city of the Babylonian Empire. The great Asian Empire of the time that had conquered vast amounts of the world. And so much so that it had taken captive the children of Israel and brought them into exile from the promised land. The people of God had been assimilated into one of the greatest urban centers in the world at that time. And the three Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as well as Daniel himself and other chapters of this prophecy, they were faced with the challenges and the difficulties of trying to navigate being faithful to God and his commandments while living in the midst of the pagan city, living in the center of Gentile urbanity, living under the rule of a pagan ruler who lorded over his subjects and tolerated nothing short of total subjection. They had to navigate this as the people of God in the midst of a pagan culture. The context of Daniel chapter 3, in other words, brothers and sisters, is a direct parallel and application for us today living as faithful Christians in the midst of the world city. And increasingly experiencing, as we are, the threats of, and persecution of world leaders, of politicians, of rulers and authorities who seek total subjection to their agendas and their policies. Just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's faith and fear of the one true God ran them smack up against the desires and the agendas of the, the, the pagan city and the pagan rulers, so today... Christians all across the world and us as Christians in America are facing the reality that to follow Christ, to follow our master means we will run straight across the grain of the, this world's values and agendas. 
This morning we find that Daniel chapter 3, an ancient prophetic word and a story about actual historical happenings of thousands of years ago. We find that it is the word of the Lord for us today. It has direct bearing on our current context in history. So let's look at this chapter in a little bit more detail and notice the parallels and the applications to our current situation. First of all, in verses 1 through 15, we notice the threat. The threat. Nebuchadnezzar has set up this golden image that he requires everyone to bow down to when the music plays. The threat is, if you don't conform to his agenda and bow down to this idol and worship it, you will be thrown into the fiery furnace and face pain and suffering unimaginable. Of course, the young Hebrew men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that, that the names the Babylonians gave them, their actual Hebrew names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. These young Hebrew men refused to bow down or to worship anything but the one true and living God of Israel. It's quickly reported to the king that these men are blatantly disobeying the king's commandments. And they are rebelliously refusing to conform to his agenda, to worship the golden image. Nebuchadnezzar, in his reasonable benevolence, gives them an ultimatum. He gives them another chance to do what he has commanded and bow down to the image when the music plays or or else he will have them thrown into this fiery furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had previously been appointed as rulers over the affairs of Babylon. They were were high in government. They were high in the king's service. They had been servants of the king and the kingdom of Babylon. They had sought the prosperity of the city with others. And the New Testament itself contains a great theme of God's people being in the world, but not We are called to submit to the governing authorities, to pray for our rulers. We are called to live a quiet and peaceable life, living productive lives, working as unto the Lord in our secular employments, contributing to the city and seeking its prosperity and its welfare with our resources, with our our labors. Christians are not called upon in the teachings of Jesus and the apostles to separate themselves into an insulated cult or a monkish retreat from the affairs of the city. We are to be hard workers, productive members of society. We are to contribute to the well-being of our neighbors around us. Indeed, we benefit greatly from the city ourselves with all its amenities and securities and health care. We participate in the great marketplace and derive our sustenance from its goods and its services. Listen to the Apostle Paul expound some of these ideas in the New Testament, contributing to the welfare of our neighbors in the city in Romans chapter 12 and Romans chapter 13. Starting in Romans chapter 12, verse 17, we read this. These are some of the principles we're to, as we're to conduct ourselves in the city amongst our neighbors. 
Repay no one for evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers, attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, godly Christians today are, are good members of society and they are a boon to any culture that they live in, any country they live in. And yet, as it happened to the three men in our story, it is, it is happening today as well. When that the child of God is, is faced with a threat, to conform to the authorities in direct violation and disobedience to the God who created him and redeemed him. That's the threat. Though we are to submit to the government and be law-abiding citizens and support the order and the stability of the society around us, when the law of the land goes against the commands and precepts of Almighty God, we must say like all the apostles did, we ought to obey God rather than men. What is happening more and more today is that Christians are being threatened with fines and punishments and imprisonment for not bowing down to the idols of the day across the world. If we will not conform to the godless agenda of the authority, we will eventually receive an ultimatum. Bow down, conform, tolerate, keep quiet, or you will face the consequences. And Nebuchadnezzar had benefited greatly from the Hebrew service to his city. The world today has greatly 
greatly benefited from the influences of godly men and women and from the truths of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ has changed Western society for the better, and it cannot be denied in reality, although ironically it's, it's being denied by many today. They are ignorant of, of history. And the city has taken the blessings and the prosperity it has received from the Christian influence and glutted itself on pleasures and perversions and debauchery and lewdness. It has set up a golden image of lust and worldliness that it is more and more requiring everyone to conform to, to bow down to. If we do not bow down as the music plays, if we do not dance the dance and get in step with the world's agenda, we will be seen as, to put it lightly, the greatest killjoys of the world's party. And to put it heavier, we will be the aroma of death leading to death to those running headlong into judgment and eternal destruction. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to see it. It reminds them of the judge of all the earth and their sin. And so we are under this threat, a threat that is growing each and every day. And at some point, we will all face an ultimatum in one way or another. It is coming. It's coming. Now let me just say at this point that we know that this is a very uncomfortable concept to think about. I, I sat up late last night praying about this message and, you know, it, part, parts of it make me sick to my stomach. It's a very uncomfortable concept to think about. And though we are called by Jesus not to worry about tomorrow, we must acknowledge at this point in the message that fears and anxiety and dread about what seems to be coming down the pipe for the church of Jesus Christ is not just a reality that we are more and more experiencing. We are experiencing fears and worries and anxieties. But we have to note that it is completely normal to feel that way. You have not disqualified yourself from the grace and power of God if you are feeling anxiety about the future. Of course we worry about our families. Of course we struggle with fears about the brave new world that is emerging before us. The imperatives in the, in the, the, imperatives in the New Testament such as be anxious for nothing and do not worry about tomorrow, those are given to us because the Holy Spirit knows we're going to struggle with these things. He knows we need to be reminded. We need to be helped in our struggle. It's normal to battle with fear and anxiety. You, you, we're not in heaven yet, Christians. There is no perfection this side of glory. And so you will continually go through the ups and downs of struggling with despair and then moving from there to faith and trust in God's sovereignty and his love for us and then maybe back again the next day to being punched in the gut by a news headline. And then again, running to Christ for him to undertake for our souls. Running to the promises of God in the Bible for encouragement and for the bolstering of our faith. That's all normal Christianity. 
if you've really analyzed the threat that is growing upon the church of Jesus Christ with any kind of intelligence looking at the world scene, you will surely encounter a battle with worry and anxiety. Completely normal. Paul himself said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we despaired even of life. It's Paul the apostle at the height of his apostolic powers. Wanted to die. But with the threat we see around us, our second point is that we must resolve to face the music. Resolve to face the music. This is what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Look at verses 16 through 18, which read as follows. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this manner. If this is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. These Hebrew men resolved to not bow down and to face the consequences of their rebellion against the king and the ways of the city. Notice, though, that they resolved to do so with the understanding, the understanding that they weren't naive about this, that God could very well not deliver them from the suffering of the furnace. They were resolved to go through whatever they must in order to glorify their Savior. Now this is no doubt, seems to be as if these men had Herculean faith. They, they were super gi- spiritual giants. How can you and I resolve to face the consequences that the city might eventually throw at us? How can you and I do that? We no doubt can easily imagine the worst case scenarios and quake in our boots. How can you and I, pampered Americans that we are, how can we face the consequences of following Jesus Christ in the dark and evil day of persecution? Well, my friends, we can't. There's no way that you and I can do this in and of ourselves. But if you are a Christian here this morning, you have surely tasted of the supernatural in your life. You have known what it is to have your heart completely changed from the inside out. You have known what it is to be infused with the holy zeal and devotion and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And his ways. And you, you have known what it is to pant after God as the deer pants for the water brooks. And none of these virtues are natural. You were not born with these qualities. You were born bowing down to the golden image. Bowing down to sin and self and the devil. The fact that you have been born again is Supernatural. You didn't repent and put your faith in Christ out of your own resources or by mustering up the resolve and the strength to do that. You didn't just figure out you needed to be a Christian one day. You thought it was you were smarter than your neighbor. I don't want to go to hell. 
What we want to point out this morning is that the same Spirit of God that abided on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego abides in each of us who are Christians here this morning. Supernatural grace is available to each and every Christian, no matter how weak their faith might be. We're not a special case so that God is not able to take us through fiery afflictions of persecution just because we have lived in a pampered age in a, in a pampered country. God is able to undertake for all of his children. He will. He will carry us through to the very end. He will. But the resolution these men declare before Nebuchadnezzar also didn't just come out of a vacuum. They didn't just, suddenly they had this faith. These men had lived devoted lives to the God of Israel for years. They had faced trials of faith many times before, and God had prepared them for this day. He had tried them and tested them over and over again, making strong their faith. You wonder why you go through trials? Why another trial is coming your way? Why it seems like when it rains, it pours in your life? God is preparing you. He's strengthening your faith. They faced the attack of Babylon on Jerusalem and they knew the terrors of the siege on their city. And then they had experienced the horrors of being taken into captivity, taken from their homeland. Can you imagine that? Being captured by a foreign country and taken away. And they were brought to a foreign kingdom, a godless kingdom. And then they faced the trials of being threatened with death if they did not interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In other words, they, they had been tested over and over again. And they were not new to trials of faith. They, they walked with God in the days of plenty as well as in the days of adversity. And dear Christian, in order to have the resolve to stand for Christ in the evil day, we must seek to walk with God in the day of small things as well. By the power and grace of God alone, we must seek to resolve to stand for Christ now in the days of plenty. We aren't to wait to live godly, heroic lives for Christ until we face some tremendous trial of our lives. We are to resolve to live for Him now in the day of small things. Resolve not to look at that picture on the internet. Resolve not to watch that edgy movie. Resolve not to let that temper of yours flash and boil and lash out at your loved ones. Resolve to die to yourself when you get home from work. Resolve to seek the Lord in private devotions and prayers. Resolve to attend the means of grace on the Lord's day, resolve to be kind and tender-hearted. Resolve to love those who rub you the wrong way, who you feel are obnoxious, who are making it hard for you in the workplace, who blaspheme maybe Jesus Christ in front of you during work, who make it hard for you. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God in the day of small things, so that when the evil day arrives, and it, it does look like it's coming, Brothers and sisters, when the evil day arrives, you will be experienced about discerning between good and evil, 
you will have grown in knowledge and all discernment and you will be able to recognize what it is you need to do, what you need to say, what you need to deny when the evil day comes and the ultimatums are thrown down before you. Resolve to face the music now, my friends, and we will not be charmed by its soothing promises of escape from suffering on that day. And I'm preaching to myself, believe me. But thirdly, our last point is that though we are put into the fires, we must have faith in the fire. For Christ is in the fire with us. Faith in the fire. Verses 23 and 25. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down into the midst of the fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he said, I I see four men loosed, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. They are not hurt. And the fourth is like the Son of God. Jesus Christ, Son of God, is the only one who can cause us to endure fires of affliction or persecution in this life. He's the only one. The Hebrew men experienced the Son of God maintaining their bodies and souls in the midst of these fires. Their faith was in God and He met them. He met them in their time of need. God gave them the grace they needed when they needed it. Christ did not abandon His loved ones in their time of affliction. Though they were not delivered from the fire, they were delivered from its effects only because the Son of God walked with them in the midst of these fires. And we're not promised to escape the threats and ultimatums that are coming down the line. We're not promised that a great revival will come in time to see each of us spared from suffering or hardships. We're not promised those things, but we're, we're promised That if we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he will never leave us. He'll never forsake us. And those of us who are believers today, our lives are hidden in Christ. We are seated with him in heavenly places. We cannot be separated from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. You cannot be separated. Now do we live like that is true? Act like that is true. Speak like that is true. Is this the aim of our life? All our desires ultimately being bent upon knowing Christ. We're just saying that. Knowing you, Jesus. Sitting at his feet. Washing his feet with tears of repentance and thanksgiving. Leaning on his loving breast. Longing to sup with him. To be with him in the quiet place and in the assembly of God's people. To feed upon him as the very bread of life as we hear the word of God preached. To pray in his presence. 
as we are communing with the very living God who so loved us that he gave his life for us in the tortures of the cross. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. Do we live our lives loving the Lord Jesus Christ, rejoicing in the Lord always? Now rejoicing in, the Bible says rejoice in the Lord always. That doesn't mean you're happy all the time. It means that you're, you have a deep-seated love for Christ and you're seeking to enjoy him always, seeking to love him, to know him, even in the dark valleys of affliction and the perplexities he brings us through. We cannot hope to endure as Christians in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation unless we are walking with the Son of God. If we walk with Him now, we will continue to walk with Him in the fires, for He holds us in His hands. He sustains us. His Spirit indwells us. His grace is available. He died for His elect. He made effectual His promises to us. If we have faith in Christ now, we will have faith in the fire, for He will preserve us. He will. He will sustain us. If we abide in Him, we will bear much fruit. The same kind of fruit that these seemingly spiritual giants, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had. Why are they there for us in Scripture? So we can say there's no way I could ever even be like them? Paul the Apostle said he's a pattern for us who would believe after him. If we're not Christ-adoring, if we aren't knowing the fellowship of the Son, if we can't say we know what it means to actually commune with our Savior, if we fail to see the importance of drawing near to Christ, of walking with Him, of doing all to His glory, of leaning on Him in the hard times and the good times, Abiding in Him in the day of small things and the days of adversity. If we're not familiar with the Son of God, what will we do when God sends strong delusion to the world? And whatever your views are on the Antichrist and whether or not these things come just prior to the Lord's return or not, though we'll never know what the day or the hour of the return of Christ is, we can neither know the timing exactly or the duration of this strong delusion God promises to send those who do not receive the love of the truth. But either way, in every age, there are great lies and deceptions that can deceive, if possible, even the elect. In every age, there arises small a antichrists. The deceptions and the lies that the world swallows are always available to swallow. And they are dipped in the chocolate of great convincing arguments and philosophies and promises of an easy life. How can you hope to escape the delusion that is on the whole world if you don't seek the Lord Jesus Christ now? What hope have you to stand fast and hold to Christ when the threats turn to ultimatums? If you're not clinging to Christ now, what are you going to do? What hope have you that the Son of God will walk with you in the fire if you are denying Him entrance and access to your life right now? 
Whoever believes in his heart that Christ died for his sins and rose from the dead will be saved. But if you truly believe Jesus did this for you and that he is your Lord, then your life will manifest the fruits of one who abides in Jesus and walks with Jesus. We will no doubt struggle with anxieties and at times, as Paul did, will despair of life. That's not a sign that you're not a Christian. If you felt uncomfortable during this message at times, it doesn't mean you don't have spiritual life in you. It probably means you do have spiritual life in you. Jesus is one who takes us through the valleys, not around them. He walks with us in the fires. And if you're one that can be honest with yourself this morning and you feel you don't have any true knowledge, any experiential knowledge of Christ, oh, you, you agree you don't want to go to hell and so you've professed to be a Christian. But my dear friend, though every Christian continues to live with the presence of sin in their lives, they have nevertheless left their desires for worldliness, for the lusts of this present world. They have stopped bowing down to the agendas of this world. They slip up, of course. They no longer follow a celebrities or a music group's philosophies on the way to live or their favorite author's take on life, talk show host, dogma. They follow the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. They have resolved to follow him. Though they may have to face the music of being hated by the world for his sake. And they have devoted their lives to drawing near to him and worshiping him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Not perfectly. This is done through many toils and snares, as we sing about often. They mess up. Christians quench the spirit at times. We say stupid things. Don't have the perfect marriage. Not the perfect mom or dad. But they know, they know the Lord Jesus Christ. They know him. They hate their sin that remains. And they long to follow Jesus. To see him face to face and to abide with him forever. That's their goal in life. To dwell with the Lord. So to have faith in the fire is to have faith in Christ now. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. And all of us here this morning need to resolve afresh and anew to seek the Lord Jesus Christ while he may be found. Just as these Hebrew men in the, in the prophecy of Daniel were contributing citizens of the worldly city they lived in, so too, though our society is increasingly godless and secular and even pagan, as Christians, we are to continue to live in the world, though we do not ascribe its values. As we love our neighbors and seek to benefit the city with our labors and our resources, we will be able to witness to them the character of Christ and the peace of God within our souls. The one who works as unto the Lord in the workplace will gain the attention of those above and below him for good or for ill. And this gives rise to the open door of our testimony being shared with our colleagues and our unsafe family members, always ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. But perhaps the greatest witness to our testimony of being saved from our sins 
having found peace with God, will come when we are faced with an ultimatum from the world to bow down to their image or else. That might be our magnum opus. But if we know Christ and we are walking with him now, whether we're thrown into the fires of adversity or we know the abounding benefits of peace and prosperity, it doesn't matter whether we're abased or we're abounding, we will be clinging to Christ Jesus and he will be with us in the temptations of luxuries and pampered America or in the very fires of persecution. The Son of God will be with us. He will. He promises it. We must learn to become familiar with the fellowship of Christ. We must learn to pray always, not demanding deliverance, but resolved to face the music if we have to, praying for a resolve to follow our master wherever he would lead us. And yet, we, we should be praying for revival. And we should be praying for the Lord to return. Every revival, great revival in history, though it's sovereignly ordained of God and we, we cannot make revival happen. We can't muster that up. Yet every revival has been precursored by God's people praying. And I ask you, how would the second coming of the Lord be any different? We're not praying for the Lord to return. Where are our hearts? And people say, well, I don't want to pray for God's return because I want my kids to be saved. I want my family to be saved. But we believe in the doctrine of election. And all God's elect will be saved before he comes. So you pray all you want for the Lord to return. If your children are elect, they will be saved before God comes. Let's cry out to the Lord for deliverance, for mercy, and grace to help in our time of need in this time of history. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the testimony of men of God of yesteryear who were enabled by your grace and your spirit to stand fast in the days of affliction. We, we know that we have much to be thankful for with all the securities we do have and we don't want to be a prophet and prophesy exactly what will happen to us in the future, but we see things coming down the line and we just cry out to you, Lord, and ask that you would have mercy on your church, on your people, and we pray that you would come again, not just so that we can escape, but so that your kingdom could come and that we would be able to enjoy sinless reality and to be able to lean upon your breast for all eternity, never to be separated from your presence again. We long for that day, Lord. We know it's coming. We know that one way or another we will see you soon because either we're going to die or you're going to come again. And that's all within the next hundred years for all of us. We pray, oh God, that you give us the grace we need to live for you moment by moment, day by day, month by month, trusting in you, not being shaken by the winds and waves of doctrine and news headlines and, and all the agendas of the lawmakers. We pray that you give us strength to resolve to live for you in this day. In Jesus' name, amen.